is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Enter Sad Men podcast. Here we are, Steve and Mark and myself, Richard. On episode, can you believe it, number 48, we are fast approaching episode 50 and our 150 albums in our list of the greatest heavy metal hard rock albums that you should own. And this episode is based on the homework that was set for us by the queen of metal herself, Doro Esch. So please, if you haven't already listened to it, check out our special interview with her that we did not too long ago, where she lets us into all manner of her experiences. But part of what she did, of course, was to give us her top 10, her personal top 10 albums. Uh, check those out in that episode and on our website, www.entersadmen.co.uk. Uh, but yeah, she also gave us three of those top 10 that we should review in one of the episodes. And here we are. This is it for the last week or so. We've been listening to three of her favorite albums. We've kind of divided them up, haven't we? I think I'm first this evening. Uh, and uh, my album is uh, by Saxon, and it is from uh, 1981, and it's their third album, Denim and Leather. Uh, Mark, what did Doro give you to uh, lead this week? Well, I took, of the three, I took uh, Dio's second album, which was The Last In Line. And I might also add that as we've been listening to them, or I've been listening to these, it's very clear why Doro likes them as much as she does. Steve, what did you uh, pick up for us? Yeah, and the third one she gave to us was, um, and I was reading a bit of background, it was, she, had a, she had a great relationship with Blackie Lawless, um, which I didn't know about. And, of course, we saw Mark, didn't we? We saw Wasp and Warlock um, just a couple of months after um, they played at Donington. And she said, tells this lovely story about how she felt ill one night going into, onto stage. Well, just before they were going onto stage, and Blackie, you know this 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 monstrous rock god as he was back then, you know, all, all makeup and villainy and and you know anti-hero, and he was he was an old cuddly old pussycat and gave her all sorts of vitamins and and, and sort of juices and and potions. Said, "Go into my dressing room, lie down, and just you know have a kip, and I'll wake you up when you're ready to go on stage." And you're just thinking, "This is Blackie Lawless, you know, the the, 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 the fearful Blackie." And anyway, she says that. Um, uh, he he probably doesn't remember that, but I do, and he was definitely looking after me. She said, so she's obviously got a big thing about Blackie and Wasp, and she has chosen from his or their back catalogue uh, the Crimson Idol from 1992. So there you go. So we better get on with it, but uh, before we kick off with Saxon, let's have a little listen to a few of the tracks that have been delighting our ears in the last week or so. Yeah. 
there you go then. A little insight into some of the music that has uh, tickled Doro's fancy over many, many years, and um, and ours as well. And um, we've certainly enjoyed listening to all three of them. The first of which, we'll do these things in chronological order. So the first album of Doro's um, is Saxon's Denim and Leather. Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and no, I made a mistake earlier. I said it was their third studio album. Of course, it's their fourth. Uh, but uh, the reason I said three, well, it was the last of the trio of absolute classics uh, alongside Wheels of Steel and Strong Arm of the Law. So this is Saxon's Denim and Leather from 1981. So the first entry, the first time we've listened to a Saxon album. So here they are for the first time. Plenty more to go, but a band we all know and love so saxon what can we say about saxon well they were of course originally son of a bitch uh their name they were formed in barnsley in yorkshire in uh, in england in 1977 but as part of their deal with career records um they changed their name or they said they were told they had to change their name uh, to saxon uh released their eponymous debut album in, in 1979 and my goodness, they kicked them out, didn't they? Two albums in 1980 with uh, Strong Arm of the Law, before that, Wheels of Steel. And then uh, Denim and Other was released in uh, September, 25th of September 1981, recorded earlier that year, released again on the Career Record label. In terms of the personnel, well, it's the, it's the classic Saxon lineup of uh, Peter Rodney Biff Byford on vocals, Graham Oliver on guitar, with Paul Quinn on the other guitar. Steve Dawson on bass and Pete Gill on drums. It was recorded uh, across Europe at uh, Query Studios in Geneva in Switzerland and Polar Studios Stockholm in Sweden. Produced by Saxon with a guy called Nigel Thomas. It did pretty well chart-wise in the UK. It reached number nine uh, and uh, was pretty successful all over Europe as well as reaching gold in the UK in several other, other European countries. Uh, didn't do much in the states. I imagine they. I'm not sure if they discovered it until uh, you know a few years later when uh, Nwobum really uh, w- went over there. In terms of the cover, um, I mean it's that classic denim Saxon you know front with the Saxon logo and the eagle. Uh, there's an interesting photo on the back if you flip the album over of them on a astride all of these motorbikes. Assuming, you know, that they're cruising down Route 66. No, they weren't cruising down Route 66. They borrowed the motorbikes from a motorbike uh, shop in Barnsley, pushed them up onto a hill just behind it, and uh, were photographed uh, you know, on the crest of, of this hill somewhere in Yorkshire. The title actually was uh, not 
not inspired by you know their fans or the the uniform, but apparently uh, by an Alice Cooper album uh, called uh, "From the Inside." But I mean, it, it 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 really is classic Saxon, isn't it? Absolute classic Saxon. It's no nonsense. It's straight ahead. I mean, really good music, well balanced, and I'm sure we're going to talk a number of times uh, in the, in this part of the show about. Uh, the first of our fantastic singers this evening. All, well, all some of them, let's say. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, oh, it was lovely going back to this. How, how, how did you guys find it? Yeah, well, you said it, Richard, a band we all know and love. And I think that's the point, isn't it? That, that what's not to love about Saxon? That, that when I first, the first note I wrote down was, is, is this Saxon's finest hour? And I thought, actually, is this Saxon's final hour as well? Because you, again, you make the point that this is part three of this, of this holy trinity of albums after, you know, Wheels of Steel and Strong Love of the Law. Then this. And I don't think they did anything better. I think this was Saxon's finest hour. So therefore their final hour as well. The band is so South Yorkshire. Everything about this band is so South Yorkshire. The guitars almost play in a Barnsley accent, don't they? It's proper early 80s hard rock from one of Britain's hard rock heartlands. And it's very, very difficult to pick any holes in this. Having said that, I've read plenty of reviews and some who should know better and will remain nameless have tried to find holes in this. Um, and, you know, maybe you two have spotted a flaw. I don't think you have, because I know you're big fans as well. But I don't think there's any weak points on this album. I really don't. I think it's an absolute textbook in how to do new wave of British heavy metal. And therefore, there are those who will argue that, yes, this was a textbook for how to do new wave of British heavy metal in 1979. But now, where are we? 1982, 81. And therefore, three albums down the line, they should have moved on a bit and matured. And I think, really? Why? You know, this just works. This, yeah. I, I don't need I don't need anything different from the last two albums. And it is different. It's different enough to keep you really amused and happy and delighted. I have absolutely no issue with Saxon mining a seam that they've mined successfully before. There you go. South Yorkshire coal mining reference for you to finish. I love this album. I absolutely love it. The thing that has struck me is that this doesn't sound like 1981. This sounds like something that's just a little bit newer because, and maybe it's just it's slightly more commercial, I suppose, than Strong Arm of the Law, isn't it? And, and Wheels of Steel, which were very much in Wobbum. I mean, they really were kind of quite gritty and, and hard edged and all wrapped up in sort of two, three, three and a half minute songs. But there are two massive singles off this album. So clearly, 747 Strange in the Night has given them a taste for the charts and, you know, we revisit the charts with this. I think there is one, there are one or two missteps on it for me, but I mean, we're going to be picking tiny holes, I think. It's just a bloody good, fun album. It's interesting, we talk about the, 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 the Holy Trinity, you know, Wheels, Strong Arm of the Law, law and this. I still have, I mean, I, I never really listened to, I don't think I've ever heard in uh, all the way through the power and the glory, but I quite like Rock the Nations, and I quite liked Innocence is No Excuse, and I quite like Destiny. I mean, they're not they're not great albums, and they've got hideous mistakes on them, all of them, but they're not bad albums either. So, but yeah, I mean, this is this is the point at which I think we we can kind of bookend Saxon's core contribution to 
the new wave of British heavy metal and British rock, hard rock in its entirety by going, yeah, it started with Wheels of Steel, it kind of finishes with Demon Leather, leather, and there's some interesting bits afterwards, but probably not enough to make you want to sit and listen to the entire album, whereas you want to sit and listen to the entire album of this and the two before. So, yeah, I agree. It's quite a special album. Yeah, so let's get this album kicked off and... It's kicked off with a train and a song that goes like an absolute train. My goodness, I forgot how fast this riff was. Track one, Princess of the Night. Let's do the others. So Never Surrender, Out of Control, Rough and Ready, Play It Loud, and the band's played on, Midnight Rider, Fire in the Sky, Denim and Leather. Uh, yeah, so Princess of the Night, track one. Um, yeah. It would be nice and romantic to think this is about uh, you know a train that they once rode on or uh, of some other reference, but it was actually because after they had done a gig, one of the places that they slept was in a van in a railway siding next to some great big rusting old steam trains. And so they wrote a song about it. I- iconic riff, wonderful uh, solo. We might come back to the questionable lyrics. Uh, I'm sure someone's written a letter about those. But yeah, Princess of the Night. I mean, it's just brilliant, isn't it? This is a brilliant song. Do you know what I love about Saxton? Is that they're quite good at drawing images, aren't they? Because I can see this train. I mean, I know that it's a rusting hulk in a, in a railway yard somewhere. <laughs> you know, And he's projecting some history that it might never have had. But every time I hear this song, I can... I can see this kind of thing hurtling down the tracks with the, <laughs> you know, the fires going and the steam, you know, the smoke going, everything. I, I love it. It's just, it, what a way to start an album. Really, really good song. Every time I hear this, I just think, I wish fucking Southwestern Railways went this fast, but <laughs> <laughs> this is priceless. Absolutely priceless. They still love playing it to this day. I did have a look. Because it, it's an anthem, isn't it? It's an absolute anthem. The Saxon fans adore it and expect it live. I looked at Setlist FM, and I've no obvious reason to doubt Setlist FM. Um, Princess of the Night is their most played track live, alongside Wheels of Steel. Does that surprise you? You've got a look of surprise on your face, Mark. If you'd asked me to bet my mortgage on it, I would have said 747, Stranger Than the Night. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't bet then. Don't bet, kids. The professor in the group needs to... Do you want to talk about steaming red hot pistons? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think Biff has got a huge grip of the laws of physics, but yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's be clear that uh, the, the pistons uh, might be a bit hotter than 100 degrees C, but probably not red, red hot. The tolerance levels, well, they, they would cease. Yeah, let's be clear, they'd yeah. cease. You know, yeah. so um, driven by steam pressure, not heat. Let's uh, let's be clear about that. It's not only a great, absolutely belting song; it just makes me smile. Well, there is better stuff on here, by the way. Interesting. So, yeah, track two was the first of the two big hits off of this album, uh, and it's Never Surrender. It's that classic opening riff. You know what it is. Use of harmonics. The use of harmonics on that riff, I think, actually was ahead of its time, I would yeah. say. The other thing I love about this song is a, a fantastic vocal performance by Byford. His range and then the growls and just the different sounds he's, he's, he's producing. It's just a brilliant one to sing along to. He is great at producing different sounds. He does it throughout the album, doesn't he? Also, when you least expect it. He's got quite a vocal dexterity that you don't imagine, really, when you first hear him. I don't know. Oh, he's a great singer, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, love Never Surrender. So catchy. Uh, love the rhythm section in the chorus. Short track. Pack it in. Move on. Classic. Wobbum stuff. Just a belter. Top top follow up to Princess of the Night. Absolutely sparkler. And it's got an it's got an absolutely stereotypical Nwobum guitar solo mm. as well. Yeah. It is so Nwobum that just that guitar solo in the middle of it. Yeah. Um yeah, one of the one of the two singles that I bought. And I think I think this I have a huge amount of affection for this track because I think it's the first one released by a heavy metal band that I saw on top of the pops. It was like suddenly this was the song that you you saw, you could see a rock band on on top of the pops. You know, it was probably the first time, or you know, certainly one of the first times. And um, yeah, this was the point at which 1981. It's the point that you definitely knew there was a a groundswell of support for this kind of music. And I think this track kind of epitomizes that that time. Actually, it really does. As Steve says it is phenomenal. I mean, yeah. I'm, well under three minutes, that track. I mean, yeah. Perfect, yeah. Isn't it? Absolutely perfect. So it gives way to track three, which is uh, Out of Control. They they line it up a bit on this, don't they? There's almost a bit of a 60s vibe to it. So, I mean, to your point earlier, Steve, around that those that said, oh, yeah, they're just churning out the same old stuff. I, I think on this album, there's a real variety in terms of some of these tracks and, and it's sort of lighter it's bouncier i mean it's almost beach boysy <laughs> what i mean in the chorus yeah well they never compromise on of course is the back is the sort of rhythm section and, and the riffs you know for whatever they're doing over the top and turning these songs into you know everything from the beach boys to motorhead behind it is is just that rock steady saxonness and um, that's what's un- that's what's unmistakable throughout the first four, certainly three albums. But yeah, anyway, out of control. Yeah, love it. They could trademark that Saxonness, couldn't they? Yes. I mean, that is a trademark sound. There are some bands where you only have to hear the guitar or or the the, the way the the rhythm section integrates together, and you go, yeah, that's whoever, and definitely Saxon have got that. Is this about a woman or is this about a motorcycle? Because name me another Saxon song where they've talked about <laughs> being in love. I can't think of one. <laughs> it's got to be about a machine, surely. <laughs> Has to be. <laughs> because I there's something quite awkward about Biff singing a love song. So it has to be it has to be a pay end to, to a motorcycle or something. What is it about Saxon that brings out the fastidiousness in you two when it comes to studying their lyrics? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, it's all yeah. It's about riding on the road, isn't it? It was the. I think so. Yeah, it's the she that uh, confused me. I didn't look up the lyrics. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Great song. Great song. All right, track four then. Rough and ready is uh, the title. It's a faster, but I think a companion piece to Out of Control. It, it's similar in some of the. Uh, the melodies, I think the the vocals from Byford on this are just fantastic again, and really flowing uh, vocals. This is proper head-banging, punch-the-air metal done as well as anyone did it back then. I love Rough and Ready. I think Saxon did get left behind, but it wasn't at this point. No, no. And also, I do wonder how much the label had, because was the label an issue? I mean, I've never heard of them. Well, do you remember when we spoke to John Verity? who produced the first album, he said yeah. that Pereira absolutely bollocks up the, yeah. 
the mix on it, didn't they? French record label clearly didn't understand what they got. I think by the time this came around, Carrera gone, okay, we'll let them go on with it because they clearly they know what they're doing and yes. and that was a bit of a cash cow. But um, yeah, they certainly interfered with the first one if, if John Verity's kind of mm. account of that is, is, is correct. And I mm. see no reason why it wouldn't be. Okay, let's move on to uh, the last track then of side one, which is Play It Loud. Well, I don't know about you, but yeah, there's a bit of Saxon in it, but I'm getting a massive ACDC vibe. The chorus... The upbeat chords, you know about the upbeat chords, Mark. Um, the verse riff. I mean, it's it's a really bouncy, lovely bouncy end to the first side. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. I drove into a truck stop, stepped up, feeling proud. No, you didn't, Biff. You drove into Woolly Edge Services on the M1, my friend. You not got anywhere near a truck stop or a gas station <laughs> or a highway. <laughs> I was lying on the beach taking the rays. Where is he? Fucking Scarborough. I mean, it's just <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So I'm going for the lyrics now, but it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't accuse us of being fastidious. <laughs> this is about as derivative as, as Saxton get, I have to say. Yeah. Because, because they could have just handed this straight over to to Brian Angus and Malcolm and gone, get on with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it, yeah, it's fine. It's good fun. It's good fun. It's, uh, it's not, it's not the highlight of the album, but it's good fun. <laughs> no, what I would say, and this is the, probably the point to say is, the best half is yet to come. If indeed you can have a half with one side with five songs <laughs> and one with four. <laughs> oh, just walk into it. <laughs> And the bands played on. Well, you must know about all of this. You must know about this track. Uh, so inspired by their appearance at Donington in 1980. And for me, again, another thing about this album, uh, the, yeah, the one of two tracks on this album where there, there's that absolute salute and connection with the fans and the fan experience. They wrote about... The day, the weather, their apprehension about whether it'll rain. There's, of course, a reference to Rainbow, who are the headliners. Apparently, they wrote three verses. Did you read this, guys, that they deleted? So one was about Judas Priest. There's a reference to Judas Priest in one of these verses. There's a reference to the American bands and then a reference to them. Uh, but those what, those verses didn't make the cut. I'd love to know if anyone's got those lyrics then please send them in. It would be, be fantastic to, to mm. see. I mean, this is such a classic riff. And here's another bit of trivia for you. Apparently, Biff said that the song structure was inspired by Hold the Line by Toto. Can you hear that just a little bit? Yeah, I can. Now you say it, I can absolutely hear it, yeah. I, I, I absolutely adore this song. This, this was one of my all-time favourites back in... 1981 and for a long time afterwards so yeah love this i mean they seem unnecessarily preoccupied with the weather yeah sitting in the sun biff asks are the clouds up in the sky i mean you'd hope so biff wouldn't you (laughs) it would be a very odd state of affairs if they weren't (laughs) and do you think shooting rockets to the sky is the bottle fight (laughs) could be yes possibly yeah the other Just, thing I would say about this song is I, I like songs when they have a proper ending most of the time. 
but this is a song where the single is better because it fades. It doesn't. I think it's a really bad finish on this song. Okay, so uh, the band's played on again. Another sub three minute talker um, is uh, is followed by a, a track called Midnight Rider, which again, I mean, reference to playing live is a song about a North American tour they went on. You said earlier about about them telling a story. They're telling a story here, not only through the lyrics, but you can tell what country they're in by the almost the southern rock feel, the vibe of this song. I mean, it, it, it's about an American tour. You, you, you can tell. And you know, it's an American road song. I mean, I, I forgot how good this was. This is yeah. such a groover. This is such a groover. Biff does write his life, doesn't he? But just embellishes it slightly to make it more romantic. And it's a beautifully romantic chorus. I mean, the chorus is just... It is, isn't it? It's complete contrast to the kind of motorheadness of the um, of the structure of the verses, isn't it? But oh, I, I just think this is I just think this is as close to genius as you get on this album. I mean, the solo goes off in a direction where motorhead wouldn't go. But then, of course, they yeah you know, they got the twin guitars, haven't they? Blue collar rock, but just embellished, embroidered with that kind of lovely chorus. Goes all super tramp mm. yeah. towards the end. Yeah, love it. Great song. Okay, so Midnight Riders uh, followed uh, by track eight, Fire in the Sky. Uh, another higher paced, uh, I mean, really great riffs, dual guitars. But I'll mention it now because if there's one small downside for me about this album, it's the production. Uh, I mean, it's very clear, it's very balanced, but my goodness, this could have been far heavier in my view. And, and it's demonstrated by fire in the sky. I mean, in the hands of another producer, this would have absolutely belted you to the floor. It's a minor thing. We've talked before about the production of these early Saxon albums. I mean, there was an album where they went back in and re-recorded some of this stuff. And my goodness, it was 10 times heavier. Uh, that said, great song. Uh, you're not quibbling at all, Rich, over production. I that's not nitpicking at all. I think that's a massive element. This album would have been elevated so, so much more had it been a bit heavier that maybe that would have given it that separate sense of identity that some of the critics questioned whether it had they mm. thought it was you know soppy and silly and soft did it need to go heavier could it have been heavier and yes absolutely could have done because a track like this you're absolutely right it turned up a notch i know nothing of that production production but just turned up cries out for it it's a it's a sensational song well let's slow it down a bit and can i just ask you a question you two where were you in 79 when the dam began to burst? <laughs> I'll tell you where I was, Richard. I was listening to better songs than this one. That's where I was. I was reading the music paper from the front to the back. <laughs> what a brilliant description of what it was like to be a fan of music yeah. at that point in time. Yeah, queuing for tickets, listening to the radio. I don't know what they were listening to, radio on a Friday night. Any any guesses, anybody? <laughs> Who knows? Oh, this really is a, a song for the fans, isn't it? I love it. I love it. It's this great groove, dual guitars. I think it's a fantastic finish to, to this album. It's got an almost Aerosmith bounce to it. It's autobiographical for us three, isn't it? it this, this could be us. I mean, I just what's not to love about something like this? And it is, and stop shaking your head, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. 
I hate to pick them up on the lyrics. You know that I don't like to do that with sex. But who queued for tickets through the ice and snow? Didn't you just send your money off in an envelope and they came back? Isn't that how it works? That's what I remember. That's that's because you lived in Nebworth, not Hampton. <laughs> I absolutely sign up to the kind of the anthemic fist in the air, arm round the shoulder sentiment of the lyrics. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the song. <laughs> There's sort of some voices at the end singing along, and apparently they ran a competition in sounds. So this was pre Kerrang. So in, in in the sounds music paper in the UK. Uh, they ran a competition to to join them to sing along. So Biff says he was blown away by about seven or eight thousand replies that they got to this competition, and then they invited gonna... thirty to forty fans into the studio to to sing at the end of this. The problem is, it sounds like it's only thirty or forty fans. <laughs> that's that's my big issue with that part of the song. It's... Could you not just have layered it so that it sounded like a show? They could be playing at the Rose and Crown in fucking Barnes. <laughs> they? they should have invited all 7,000 in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm taking the piss because in the end, at the end of the day, it, this is a, a, a great album. Okay, well, let's have some... Uh... Highs and not so highs from you, gentlemen. Steve, do you want to go first? Mm, I've got a lot of ties, but almost by default, having said how much I love it, Denim and Leather is my joint's weakest song on the album. It shows what a good song it is. That's all I'll say. Um, and what a good album it is, rather. Um, and my favourite, again, I've got uh, Fire in the Sky, Midnight Rider. Um, I'll go Fire in the Sky, if pressed. Yeah, Denim and Leather for me is the not-so-strong song on the album. It is, uh, was, and forever will be, and the band's played on. It just takes me back to a, instantly to a time and place. Guys, yeah, it's all very varied, isn't it? Right, so for me, um, it's probably uh, Fine Sky, Rough and Ready, with uh, the lower ones. It's Princess of the Night. It's Princess of the Night. Yeah, he has <laughs> a grasp of physics, but it's just genius. Right, there we go. Uh, so thank you, Doro, for the first of your choices. We've thoroughly enjoyed denim, denim and leather. Thoroughly enjoyed getting back into this one. Uh, we better move on. We better move on to uh, a few more years later in the 80s. And the second appearance on this podcast, solo appearance, that is, of the little wizard himself, Theo, and last in line, Mark.
opening album sleeve notes. Yes, this is Dio. It's the second solo album, band album. Dio, Ronnie James Dio always said it was a band, not just a solo project. This is the last in line, released on July the 2nd, 1984, recorded between January and March of that year and released on Warner Brothers in the United States. Vertigo in the rest of the world, it runs to around a little over 40 minutes. It was produced by Ronnie James Deer and it was recorded at the Caribou Beach uh, studio in Colorado in the United States of America. As I say, second album, the first album, Holy Diver. Cards on the table. I've always thought this was a better album than Holy Diver. I know that most people, I think, would probably point to Holy Diver as the pinnacle of what Dio achieved with his solo project. Uh, I disagree. I think this is this is kind of streets ahead of it, really. It was followed in 85 by Sacred Heart, so they only left it a year to follow up with um, album number three. And the personnel for this, Ronnie James Dio, obviously on vocals, Viv Campbell on guitar, Jimmy Bain, bass guitar, Vinnie Apice uh, on drums, and Claude Schnell on keyboards, who is well known to Y&T fans for playing on two tracks on Down for the Count which is one of Monty's weaker albums. It charted this album at number four in the United Kingdom, at 23 in the United States, went platinum over the pond, silver here in the UK, and it runs to nine tracks, a bit like the Saxon album. Uh, we Rock, The Last in Line, Breathless, I Speed at Night, One Night in the City, Make Up Side One, Flip It Over, and you get Evil Eyes, Mystery, Eat Your Heart Out, and Egypt, Brackets, The Chains Are On, Close Brackets, um, yeah, so as I say, I've always preferred this album to the first one. Uh, I haven't listened to it properly in a long time, so it was really nice to be reacquainted with it this week. And I had I had forgotten quite how good it is, actually, I have to say. How did you two find it uh, sort of 30 years on? I think, Steve, didn't you kind of uncover a dusty old cassette uh, of this album somewhere? I did, I did, yeah, and, and I can't honestly remember the last time the cassette was out of the uh, the holder either, because um, I just completely forgotten about this. I remember Last in Line, I remember the title track, and very lit and Mystery. I remember Mystery as a single at the time, which I adored um, and still do unapologetically, because I know a lot of Dio fans think it's a bit of a mess, don't they, compared to sort of Rainbow in the Dark and stuff like that. But there are flaws in this. There's definitely flaws in this album. Three of the tracks, and bear in mind there's only nine. I'm kind of quite lukewarm about but i love the other six so much and over it's an overall impression with an album i just i just think it's really good i think that one of the reasons i really like it well there's two reasons i really like it one there's three foot <laughs> actually there's quite a few reasons why i really like this one of the first ones is that and, and i don't hear any elves or wizards or fucking hobgoblins i mean correct me if i'm wrong because you'll know this far more you know scrupulously than i do but i, I don't detect any of that D&D bollocks, which is great. That's that's one of the good things. I get a sense here that th this is also, the introduction of the keyboards is definitely a look ahead to the charts, isn't it, to be honest? Because Dio, Dio tink tinkered with the ivories, didn't he, on the previous album? And he's obviously brought in Claude Chanel to go big time. And I love a bit of keyboard. I love a bit of keyboard. This is 1980, whenever it is, 1984. You need you need keyboards. You know, th This is a step up from Holy Diver. I, I just think it's such an enjoyable album. And you, and his voice. I mean, what's not to love? And I can see why Doro loves this. I'm getting a hell of a lot of Warlock, early Warlock, certainly in two, two or three of the, of the songs at the top of the album. Um, I can see why she loves it. Vastly superior 
to Holy Diver. Is it vastly superior, Rich? We'll have to see in the scores, but I think it's going to be close. I mean, it's it's a corker, isn't it? His voice is an instrument. We talk about the the, the great singers, and, and and this album lays a real platform for him to perform. That's what I've really, really enjoyed listening to again uh, on this. And and then the other thing again, we talked a bit about Saxon, but the the balance of this band. So, so yeah, so, so Claude Chanel arrives on keyboards, but the other three musicians, they're, they're, in su- they're locked in such a groove. They know what they're doing. I mean, they're at the top of their game on this album and the way they, that they play together, but there's still the space to hear everything. And I think the, production's, the production lets that happen. Well, it's interesting you mentioned production because one of the criticisms, the big criticisms that we had about Holy Diver, if you cast your minds back, uh, given our age, it might be difficult, but to episode eight, when we did The Little Wizard, um, one of the criticisms we had of Holy Diver was that there wasn't anybody else in the studio who put a hand on his shoulder and went, Ronnie, enough's enough, less is more, mate. And interestingly, he seems to have learned his lesson, because I agree with you. I think the production on this is a lot better than Holy Diver. And you're right, well, you particularly, Rich, talk about there being space. Often it's what's not happening that's important rather than what is happening. And there seems to be, as you say, a much better balance on this album. If ever there was a statement of intent or a statement of fact, then the opening track on this album surely is it. We Rock sets off at 100 miles an hour. And really all it does is it just tells people what they do. They rock and the evidence is all here. And I think it's not my favourite track on the album. It's never been my favourite track on the album. In some ways I struggle with it because of the speed of it. But I think it's a brilliant opener for this album. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just, it's, I mean, what, it's my gothic metal, isn't it? It's just a kind of theatre and, you know, almost a drama, macabre drama. It's big and fast and thunders along and does what it says on the tin, as you say. We rock. It's just such a great rock. I love the story. I love the quote. While they were recording in Colorado, Dio said, I quote, we were playing pool, the band. We were playing pool one afternoon, and I said, we rock, because that's what we do. Voila, another anthem. And I was thinking, at what point when you're playing pool, do you suddenly... Just out of the blue, say, we rock. And that's Ronnie's mind, wonderful mind. And I can hear so much Warlock in this, certainly from their first two albums. I really can. Love it. Great song. I I love this song. I absolutely love this song. For me as well, it's about the guitar solo. We'll talk about Vivian Campbell as the album goes on, I'm sure. But he's just, he's so in control of this track, this song. Really is. Everything is is absolutely on point. There isn't any missed kind of opportunity. There's no big footing over the song. It's just the guitars absolutely pick out, I think, everything that's good about yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think but you can say that about all of them. It's it's almost yes. perfection musically, isn't it, as a, as individually and therefore as a group. They're, yeah. they're, so, yeah. they're so on their game. You know, yeah. They're so in control. Yeah. For track two which is the title track, we surely have to mention Jimmy Bain, because who co-wrote The Last in Line. And one of the signatures of this album is that they vary the pace so much. There are 
songs that start in one way and you kind of think it's going to be one thing and then it just disappears somewhere else. And I think all of the tracks that I really like on this album, Jimmy Bain had a, um, a hand in. But, you know, he was the bassist on, he was the bass player on um, Rainbow Rising, followed Dio to Dio. I just think his bass work on this, I'm, you know, I, I rarely hear the bass in music. I don't have... I don't have the ears to pick out instruments in that way, but I can. But the bass work in this on this album, he's just brilliant. He's so good. And what I love about this track is that it turns into it turns into Stargazer, Steve. That's what it turns into. <laughs> well, thankfully, it doesn't. It stays the last in line, which is a, which is a relief to us all. I actually think his Stargazer moments yet to come, isn't it? Surely the back end of the album, but I know he's. <laughs> I love the last in line, I think. And it is, and, and Bane's chorus, and Bane's bass line just dancing through this. I don't think it's evident enough on other songs. I really do. I, I, I can certainly hear it in this beautifully. Brilliant. And also the little keyboard touch in the chorus. It's the little things. It's the little things that elevate a song from good to very good. And this is very good and above. This is, for me, this is up there with, with Rainbow in the Dark. I, I think it's brilliant, brilliant. First time I heard this, I think, oh, oh, they're doing a ballad. And then it ends up like, <laughs> uh, nope. Stargazer. Ah, <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So if we think the last in line is good, um, I mean, Breathless is just, I think, a, a work of genius. Absolutely. Apart from the heavy breathing at the beginning, which makes people slightly <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but, um, but as a piece of music, uh, I love this song. It's just not only is it breathless, it's relentless. It's got a really catchy chorus. Um, and it's, again, it's it's a, a song where everything's in the right place and in the right quantity and perfectly balanced. And you're right, Richard, you know, maybe on Heaven and, Heaven and Hell, maybe he, he equaled or surpassed this, but it's close. This is just outstanding. For me, Ed, his vocals are absolutely corking again on this. As a track, it's a good foot tapper, uh, but not as epic as uh, for me as the as the last couple. Steve, yeah, no, I'm with Richard on this. I, I I do like this. I think it's ever so catchy, ever so ever so catchy. Um, but I prefer, yeah, I prefer the two before it. No two ways about that. Well, Steve, I'm not I'm not going to talk about the next track. I'm going to let you talk about the next track. Track four on the album is I Speed at Night. Do you know what I, what I love about this track is the way it just kind of tumbles in with a Peach's drum into this proper no-nonsense riff. I love the little pre-chorus melodies. I love the Campbell solo to bits. I love the fact that it's called Speed at Night. I just think it's... Um, it's just, <laughs> this, is, this is back up. We're back up after a little, after a little hiatus. A little breather, a breathless breather, and now we're flying again. I love this. Well, this is Dio does thrash, isn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. it's super fast. Yeah, I like the stop starts in it, just just tiny little breaks, and then it just sets off again. Oh, so, yeah, it really drives along, really drives along. Yeah, I don't like it as much as Steve does. That's all I'll say. I think that's impossible anyway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect to. I knew the, the moment this came on, I thought, I know somebody's going to enjoy this. 
But it's the clever, it's the cleverness. Yes, it's fast, and Campbell matches it, and the picture is, you know, they're both going, you know, hammer and tongs. But those little pre-chorus melodies, they're just beautiful. I mean, yeah, they are. They're beautiful. It, it just really, that, that he, he takes thrash in a different direction, a loving direction. It's caring. <laughs> like some little puppy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We closed side one with, um, wow, great song. One Night in the City, it's kind of catchy, and which probably means that for somebody on the podcast, it's not going to be necessarily the, a, a standout track. But it is for me, because I just, it's a great sing-along chorus. I love the kind of, the heavy, it's, it's a heavy, heavy tune. It's not, you know, it's not um poppy kind of commercial sort of, it's not, and the band's played on, this is heavy shit going on, but it's accessible and commercial. Yeah, it's just, I don't like it that much. Yeah. It's, my, yeah. it's my headspace, but am I, am I the only one, instead of singing Johnny Was a Dark Child, who sings Ricky Was a Young Boy? <laughs> I've just got Skid Row in my head. <laughs> um, I don't know, it just scans perfectly. That's just me. Don't worry about it. Um, I don't like the chorus on this, and if I'm honest, the track's just a bit too ordinary. And, and am I the only one who's getting a bit of glockenspiel in here as well? I'm sure there's something going on like that. But anyway. And also, what's all that one night bollocks through the voice distorter? Don't get that. Oh, yeah. Before it gets into sort of classic Dio riffs and mood, for me, it starts off a bit like a heavy Blue Oyster Cult song. Just, I don't know, there's a little, maybe it's a darker element to it as well. I don't know. But oh, it, it's a, yeah, chugs along, doesn't it? This, for me, really shows off the production on this album. I think the production on this track is superb. That inside one, One Night in the City. And we turn the record over, and the last four songs start off with something that also starts off at 100 miles an hour. It's called Evil Eyes. And um, I mean, it's a great way to start side two, isn't it? It's picked up the pace. Um, and you've got those lovely little kind of guitar flourishes from... Campbell and I have to say that there's there's more of Black Sabbath circa mob rules in this than Dio, I would say, because I, I can hear Turn Up the Night in this from uh, from uh, the mob rules. I'm getting echoes of neon nights. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Me too. Here's his voice as an instrument. The notes he's using and how he's jumping on this and the, 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 just the range and the, the sustain on his voice. I mean, it's a good, fast song, but it's just a platform for him to sing, and it's amazing. Love Evil Eyes. Love it. Absolute peach. Yeah. Take out that little drawn-out close. It's about three minutes. Action-packed little belter. All about the little fella's voice. Love that repetitive key line that go, the keyboard line that goes over the top. Um, hardly mentioned Chanel. He's, he's he's just there, isn't he? Just just doing his thing, and it's um you know doing it perfectly. Track two, side two. Now this, I'm interested, Steve. You you love this, don't you? You absolutely love this track, as do I. But this is so poppy. It so should not be liked by you. Why? Because you like all the speed shit. No, you're not no, supposed to no, like no, this no. stuff. You know me, I'm a bit of Strange Ways or a bit of White Sister. No, I, I love all, I just, I, listen, I'm a broad church. Anyone can pray in me. I just, no, I, I just think this is fantastic. <laughs> this is superb. And I know, and I also know a lot of diehard Dio fans, and hopefully you two aren't, and I know you are, but not 
about what I'm about to say. They get quite sniffy about this song, don't they? Um, they need to lighten up. They need to lighten up. Doesn't, what's wrong with flexing your commercial muscles, which is what Mr. RJD is doing here, and it worked wonders. I love it. It's just so happy. Am I allowed to say it's as good as Rainbow in the Dark? No. Ed, it's, it's, it's okay. It's more uh, super more poppy and... It's a nice try, but not good enough for me. I don't think anything much turns to gold on eight yards out, but it's my weak point of the album. It's, I think, quite pedestrian, given everything else that's around it. I don't like the chorus. I think it's lazy. No, not a fan, really. To be honest, I think this is a, this is a, um, a track that kind of throws forward to future albums. And, and I kind of, I parted company with Dio at or just after Sacred Heart, which was the album after this, because a lot of it sounded like this. And yeah, it's not not for me. Chorus is hooky. It's stuck in my head for a bit. But yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I've not much else to say about it. So I think, Steve, when uh, we were talking about um, the last in line being Stargazer, um, you said, doesn't Stargazer appear elsewhere on the album? And I think we've reached the point where Stargazer appears, or at least their take on Stargazer, uh, yeah. which is Egypt, open parenthesis, the chains are on, close parenthesis. Um, I like the song. It's not a batch on Stargazer, if that's what they're aiming for. I think it's a great song. It's got a lot of kind of atmospherics to it. It goes a bit Japanese rather than African, North African, I would suggest it at the beginning of it, but there you go, each to their own. Shakai Songu, as we say on the pod. Um, it's a bit ploddy. It's a bit cashmere which may be why I think it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's all right. But at nearly seven minutes, it needs to be better than just all right. Yeah, I just... Listen, I could easily just sit here and say, you know, it's shite, and it's not. It's I, I do like it. I love, the, I love that stomping... I was going to say thundering riff. It's almost plodding, to be fair. But and I, and I love it when the keyboards join in during the second verse to add a different layer to that darkness. So you've got the two levels of darkness, which is brilliant. I love this classic slow build and evolve, which he does. And we know he does it, and he does it very well. Um, so, yeah, turning it into an epic. But this just, does, this just isn't an epic. It just drifts and wanders. You, you, you alluded to Kashmir. This just drifts and wanders, but Stargazer doesn't. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an attempt at an epic, but it is this album's Kashmir, isn't it? I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a decent finish. I sit there with a nice smile on my face. Okay, that is um, Dio's second album, The Last Line, Highs and Lows. People, Richard, let's start with you. So, low for me is Eat Your Heart Out. And uh, the high can only be the last in line. Absolute delta. See? Yeah, I'm at um, on either end of this album. I don't like the chains are on. And I do like a lot We Rock. And my low is Eat Your Heart Out. And my high is Evil Eyes. So uh, there you go. Dio, the last in line, the second in line for tonight it was uh, which means that we've got one album left to do uh, and we fast forward to well by a good number of years actually by eight years to 1992 and blackie 
Lawless and Co. Wasp's concept album, The Crimson Idol, Steve. So it's interesting that you say they're Mark Blackie and Co. as much as you say Wasp, because of course, this when this started off in around September 1989, it was as a solo project. That was that was the big dream. Um, it started writing the material for this six months or so after the previous album, Headless Children, had been released. Chris Holmes, the man in the inflatable armchair, had left the band. <laughs> And yeah, Lawless was planning to do this as a solo project under his name, um, but under pressure, obviously, from fans, promoters, and no doubt pretty much everyone at Capital <laughs> said, nah, after the success we've just seen with the Headless Children, no way, pal. This is not having your name on it. This has got to be a Wasp album. That, that goes on the album cover. And I don't think... Capital were particularly enamoured with the Headless Children originally based on the demos because it wasn't Wasp enough for them. So I'm guessing the relationship between the bands was pretty strapped, but between Capital and, and Blackie were pretty strained anyway, and that was certainly evident as this went on. But anyway, this had to be a Wasp album. Handily, Quiet Riot had just disbanded, so that gave Lawless a drummer. Frankie Benali, who had been used on the Headless Children, but as a guest. He got the other Kulik, um, Bob, as opposed to Bruce, yeah and a great guitarist, and one or two other musicians drifted in and out of the process, which may sound a little odd. So yeah, Wasp were essentially Blackie Lawless and Friends by now. And what a painstaking process this was. If you look at the liner notes, I mean, this is hysteria proportions. He's, the writing of the songs for this record began in September 89. On April 1990, rehearsals began and lasted until June the 21st. On July the 17th, 1990, recording commenced and finished in February 1992. I mean, fuck's sake. And it wasn't even released in the States until 1993 in May, which was pretty much the final straw between um, Lawless and Capital. And uh, you kind of get his frustration. Anyway, one thing to note about this album, unfortunately, is it's a concept album, a story about... Oh, forget it. Yeah, it's a concept album. Lawless says... This is, this is the last thing I'll say about it, hopefully. One quote from Lawless, the Crimson Idol, he says, is an enormously complicated story. There are 10 songs on it, and each one is a euphemism for something else. Nothing on this album is really what it appears to be at first glance. Everything is a symbol for something else. So if he hasn't got a fucking clue, nor have I. So blah, blah, blah. I'm just not interested. Yeah, I like Crimson, Crimson Idol. I really do. But to all those fans who hold it up as Wasp's greatest moment, 
nah. I mean, I, they'll never trump the debut album. I prefer The Last Command. I, I love them when they're being juvenile. That's what I loved about Wasp, you know? <laughs> I, I love the Headless Children as well. I think they're all better than this. But, yeah, just some nuts and bolts. June 27, 1992, it came out. As I say, recorded July 90 to February 1992. It's just insane. Fort Apache Studios in Hollywood. Blackie Lawless on vocals. Bob Kulik on lead guitar. Frankie Bernali shared drums duties with Stet Howland. There was other people came and went. A guy called Doug Aldrich played um, guitars on Arena of Pleasure. It lasts for 58 minutes. It's far too long. Six tracks on side one, four on side two. And I do think it's a great album. There's an awful lot of ingenuity and imagination and innovation going on here. There's some great songwriting. Is it a Wasp album? Well, yeah, it is because it's got Blackie's voice. I mean, Chewbacca's gone, but does it really matter? It's still got Blackie's voice. <sighs> Can I sit here and say, hand on heart, I've loved every minute of this? No, definitely not. And it does wear me down. And I think that's got a lot to do with the key it's written in. It just wears me down. But side one is as good as anything that, that they did, I think. It just it just fades quite badly. That's what I think. I don't know whether you've enjoyed it quite the same way. It's better than Inside the Electric Circus. <laughs> On that we're agreed. Well, I, I thought I understood the story. I'm sure Mark will uh, give us a synopsis of exactly what it's all about in a minute. But I, 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 I did like the story, but at times more than the storytelling. You're the big Wasp fans amongst the three of us. And uh, yeah, there, there are times I struggle. And I, and I feel at times in his quest to you know, really bring this to life, it's ended up a bit amateur dramatic, if I'm honest. There are some enjoyable bits. Where do, where do you rate it next to Warfare, Rich? I don't know, actually. Okay, cards on the table. This this is an album of two halves. The first half is, I think, very, very good. The second half is tiresome. Let's make no mistake, The Headless Children was a proper heavy metal album. I mean, it was, I think, laugh if you want, but I think it's one of the all-time great heavy metal albums. I think it's everything that heavy metal should be, whether you like it or not. I think it epitomizes the genre. So, you know, there's that. Do I like The Crimson, Crimson Idol more than I like Inside the Electric Circus? Uh, no. Do I think The Crimson Idol is a better album than the better musically than the than Inside the Electric Circus? Yes. Will they ever trump the first two albums? No, they won't. And I think part of the problem here for Blackie is that. Wasp fans are Wasp fans for exactly what you, the reason that you said, Steve, because we love them when they're juvenile. And when Blackie gets all serious about his music, it beca he becomes a self-parody. Mm. And that's the problem. That is the problem. And I saw an interview with Blackie Lawless done, I think, on a, a sort of a very a later, and it had to be very much later, iteration of the Headbangers Ball. And um, Blackie was talking about this album. He said that, that you know, it was a really difficult album to put, to put together because, you know, when you record an album normally, you kind of finish all the songs and then you can put them in the right order for the running order. But, of course, he said for this one, you can't because you've got a story to tell, right? And I was sitting there going, well, surely, Blackie, what you do is you write the music, you put that in the right order. 
and then you write the lyrics so that you get the story in the right order as well. Surely that's the way to write a com- concept album if you find it different. I thoroughly enjoyed the first half of this. I, by the time we got past track one, side two, maybe track two, side two, I was getting a bit bored. But it's also the COD narration as well, yeah. which doesn't help it. If you want to write an album that tells a story, let the music tell the story. You don't need to narrate the fucking thing. And that was part of the problem with Warfare's Hammer Horror, which is why I kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek I ask you the question. But actually, there are a lot of similarities between the two, I think. I hope you were being tongue-in-cheek, because I don't see any... I mean, I'm not a great fan no. of this. This is... Panto, in terms of... It's it's Panto. Yeah. yeah. That I mean it in that sense. Musically, yeah. this is acres ahead of, of Warfare. But, it, but they're, they're both kind of plus de fromage Panto. <laughs> They true. They truly are ham acting at its finest, or worse, one or the other. But anyway, um, so yeah, the Crimson Idol starts off with the Titanic overture. Well, it's a bit a piece of theatre. It's going to start with an overture, isn't it? It's actually quite good. It's a it's a real builder into into a sort of decent orchestral rocker. What I do like, and, I, and Mark, I know he's going to take me up on this, but early signs of Banali's drumming prowess. I think I think it's really good, but I, I know you get a bit. Tired of this randomness, almost. Doesn't he? he does. It's a bit of scattergun approach, but it's an early introduction, also into this slightly sort of melancholy key, whichever one it is. I'm sure Spinal Tap know um, that most of this album is played in. It's not a cheery. It's not a cheery piece of work overall, and maybe that's why it gets quite hard. But as for the Titanic Overture, I think it's quite an exciting start. We said we weren't going to talk about the the concept the story, but I think we have to in light of what you've just said because unless i've completely misunderstood whether this is based on some sort of reality i don't know i suspect it might be but this is about an individual who's been abused as a child and neglected and then seeks the attention of the world and pays the price for it in terms of all of those tropes that rock and roll has of drugs and excess and the rest of it so it's not a cheery album no it's not and i think it's it's because the subject matter is actually pretty dark whether it has credibility as a piece of art, different matter, but the subject matter is pretty dark. I don't think there's an awful lot of credibility in the subject matter either, if I'm honest, but musically, I think it's, I think Overture's all right. I think it's more than all right. I really like it. Yeah, I, mm. I, yeah, I like it. really like it too. I like the build, like the middle phase. I mean, it, it, yeah, it is pretty uh, Overture, orchestral, operatic, and uh, very good finish. And being an Overture, it drifts nicely into the next song, which is uh, The Invisible Boy. More great banali drumming, and if you've any doubt at this stage that it's Wasp, then those are immediately dispelled by the vocals of one of hard rock and heavy metal's most distinctive voices. Um, and also the harmonies, because even though the personnel changes, um, the style of Wasp hasn't really. The, the other thing about The Invisible Boy, you get the first really good solo from Kulik. I loved Chris Holmes. I have a massive amount of affection for Chris Holmes because he's just one of the oddest, saddest and greatest lead guitarists I've ever come across. And being a Wasp fan, Chris Holmes is part of Wasp and, and they're very fabric. But he's not Bob Kulik, let's be honest, as a guitarist. But it's Bernard's drumming, which is catching my attention at this point and continues to do so. <laughs> it's all over the bloody shop. It's... Um... And I, I just think this is a blacky thing. I, I, we had this conversation by WhatsApp, didn't we, earlier in the week, Steve? I went back and listened to some of their earlier stuff 
every album's the same. I think Blackie just loves to have his drummers flying around the kit. And it just, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And it became a distraction for me. It really did. Well, interestingly, sorry, Richard, I, I know you want to say something, but I listened to a really fascinating interview with Stet Howland, who is the other drummer on this album. And he's notionally got two tracks listed by him. But in the interview I read with him, he said, actually, he and Benali are both playing on this song and pretty much every other song. So many takes, many cuts, all clipped together by this power-crazed producer, who is Blackie, as we know, which almost certainly explained. And Howland said, yeah, I can hear myself do that, and that's Frankie, you know, in this interview. And you're thinking, well, that's just fucking nuts. And how, how can a song work done that way? And maybe that explains why it feels a bit, you know, disjointed. Is that what you're saying? It's just overpowered. By them. It's like, you know, if, if, you, if you're a musician, you, just, you turned up for a jam session. Imagine the drummer was just doing this over everybody. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? We, 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 we talked about a peachy on, uh, on the last in line where, you know, hugely talented, little fills just here and there. Whereas this is just someone just going for an entire song. I quite like the breaks. I like the start on this. You know, what I'll come back to. It. I might as well get it over and done with and say it again. I mean, yeah, I'm not a fan of, of Lawless's voice when he sings like this. I mean, he's got two modes on this album, hasn't he? The sort of melancholy moaning and then the high pitched. And there's not a lot in between. The thing I loved about the Headless Children was was he dialed it back a bit and was singing powerfully, but generally an, an octave or so lower. And uh, it, 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 there's, a, there's a track on this album where he does put, I think he does sing quite well, but these are the two reasons why I, I, I struggle with this track. I absolutely fucking love this song. <laughs> I absolutely love it. It makes me emotional. I think it's so good in terms of it's catchy and it's just yeah. it's just got this amazing kind of soaring quality to it. I just I get everything you're saying, I agree with everything you're saying, but I absolutely fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because I um I get exactly the same buzz from Arena of Pleasure, which is the third track. I'm kind of thinking what I need now is a slicker version of On Your Knees and here it comes, you know? This is this is classic wasp esque driver. They've done nothing better than this. It just bowls along at a classic wasp pace. Lawless is so good, whatever Richard says. Lawless is so good. And when they do songs in the key of nasty, or whatever it's called, and at this pace, in terms of tempo, it's, it's, oh, it's, just, it's just perfect. And I love the chorus, and I love Kulik. Um, some great guitar licks in here, big solo, beat never drops. This is wasp doing wasp, and that's why I love it, I guess. Best track on the album for me. It's, it's more well-structured. I like how it rises and falls. Maybe it's the actually the... I don't notice his voice so much on this. Maybe it's a more in keeping with the, the style of the song. I don't know. Really good solo. So, yeah, good songs. But you also, because you've told us and you shamed us into admitting that we don't, you also love Chainsaw Charlie. Brackets, Murders in the Rue Morgue, close brackets. I do, Steve. Yeah. Go on, why so? Uh, it's the chorus, I think. I think the chorus is just hooks me. It just gets its hooks into you and it keeps you there and just, yeah. I'd, it is the chorus. It's not the it's not the verses. I, just, I live for the chorus. I prefer the two tracks that have just gone. I do love Chainsaw Charlie as well. But it's the first four tracks for me for this album. And yeah. after this, 
it starts to drop away quite quickly, it goes off a cliff. I actually tell the same about this track a little bit. It's too long. It was a single, so presumably there was a nice abbreviated version somewhere, which would have missed some of the best bits. But it starts predictably enough, doesn't it? An acoustic guitar into Lawless talking about a hedgehog into a couple of chainsaws into a monster of a riff. So, yeah, no, all very sane, all pretty staple stuff. It would be a really good metal song if they cut it off at five minutes, but then they add a kind of Iron Maiden gallop and back into Blackie, it is most Blackie. Song kicks off, so more chainsaw. Don't know what that crowd anthem finale is all about. The fact that I've got this on CD rather than vinyl would suggest that I didn't get it at the time, and I don't know what I missed because I love this now. Yeah, I, the, the first time you played this to me, I don't know what I didn't get, but I think I, I do like this a lot. You're right. The, the chorus is incredibly hooky. Do like the start and the way it picks up. I love the Iron Maiden gallop. Uh, yeah, you do. Yeah, thought you would. So the, yeah, there are some really good bits, but yeah, it could be a lot shorter. The Gypsy meets the boy is uh, is track five. I disagree with you, Mark. I think it's all right. Yeah, no, no, no. I I, I love the I, I, well, I like the opening and I love the keyboard line. No disrespect to old Chewbacca, but I think it needs Bob Kulick's touch on the guitar for something like this sort of song. But it's Blackie's voice on this, which is the most astonishing, well, not astonishing, but impressive thing. You know, you can do gentle. We kind of know that because Richard talked about the, the two tones of the man. But he does it with so so much power and emotion in this. I, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm welling up. I quite, I quite like it. I think the problem is there's not enough variety before. It's out and out, balls yeah. out, roll. Yeah. And this just goes bang, and you can't, all the pace has gone out of the album. Okay. But they kind of, if, if he balanced it out a bit more, I don't know, maybe that's it. But, you know, I mean, it is, it is as I said to you, based on two palm readers that he met, apparently encountered randomly within a couple of weeks of each other, both of whom told him exactly the same thing, which was that he was going to be a star. So, you know, this, there's, there's some truth and some heart and soul and pain in this song. I mean, it's nonsense, really, but, you know. <laughs> but he sings it well. He does sing it well, yeah. Yeah, he does. He does. Some or two halves for me. Is that really gentle bit? And then the whole of the second half is just a drummer going mental and everyone just trying to keep up with him. And I thought, well, what's yeah. the point of the second half? Well, you'll never overthink the closer on side one, which is Dr. Rockter, because now we're going back to uh, old school. I've got, I mean, this is just a kind of mashup of. I want to be somebody, fistful of diamonds, nine to five, nasty. And then, you know, as someone who loves old school wasp, this will do for me. Wasp rock, what's not to like? Just absolutely nothing wrong with this. It just smokes of blackie. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, I've got, I don't need a doctor in this. Some of this, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, it's wasp because it just sounds like he's just ripped off. <laughs> how many of his earlier songs. The thing that you can't knock Blackie for is he can write a winning hook line. Absolutely he can. Because Wasp albums are full of them. You know, whatever else goes around them, debates. You know, you can like it, hate it, whatever. But he can write a hook line. And he does here. This is a great, this is a great Wasp song. Hmm. And Yeah, and if it worked before regurgitate you know why not um yeah so yeah if you turn this album over and i recommend you don't but if you do the first track is called i am one so you've got this kind of faux live intro 
which is you know shit into a into a really really stonking riff big power big power at the start there's proper noise quite chaotic i think it's the drumming that probably makes it quite chaotic i'm kind of with you now i'm, I'm hearing things <laughs> that i don't think i'd heard before <laughs> too long but it's fine it's all right but the opening of it is just a list of places in the world yeah i know we're nearly a minute in before we get anything at this point i'm quite excited you know first time around i'm thinking dr rock to end side one great let's turn it over more of the same please and at this point i'm quite anticipating something a bit special but it's not none of the second album works the second side of this album works i find this track very messy Take my headphones off because I find it very hard to listen to. It's, it's yeah, it's very hard on my ears. I, I get that, and I don't. I actually don't think side two gets too much easier. The next one's the idol. Uh, the start of this is truly awful. So this is what we were talking about earlier. This kind of ham acting, village hall fucking amateur dramatic nonsense. All part of whatever the plot is. Anyway, I mean, it drifts into the body of another. You know potentially epic track um, which starts off all moody and gentle uh, it barely sounds like Blackie singing at the start but do you know what by now there's a kind of comfortably numb solo in here somewhere as well but the track's too long I'm just getting a bit bored you know about midway through this track I'm getting a bit bored some of these long tracks simply aren't interesting enough to merit their length this is this album's comfortably numb you're absolutely right I don't think it's just the solo then I started to think about, hmm, what album is comfortably numb of? What's the story on the album that comfortably numbs off? Is it about someone with a troubled childhood that finds <laughs> fame and fortune, that's then manipulated and lives to excess and then becomes incredibly lonely and in the end goes mad? <laughs> what are you saying? What are you suggesting? In the opening, which is, which is as you say, Steve, quite correctly, is absolutely shit. It's this kind of some scenario of some of, of Jonathan, central character in this. We should have said ages ago, the central character in this, this guy called Jonathan. Jonathan is now a star. He's in a nightclub snorting coke and presumably snorting bits of ladies. And um, his manager arrives. Isn't That sounds to me like Tony Hendry played in, what's his name, Ian Faith. Manager's spinal tap. Is that deliberate, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> it's awful. This is an awful song. Bloody awful song. I don't know what's happened. It's almost like the first two years of writing it have all been expended on the first six songs, and he's just kind of, you know, thrown some notes in a randomly up in the air. They've fallen in a particular order, and he's just written some lyrics for it. You can you can spend too long on something, can't you? He certainly spent a bit too yeah. long on it. So what we need... What would save the day is a good ballad, but unfortunately we don't have one. We have instead Hold On To My Heart, which I've read so many reviews from, from Wasp fans saying this is one of the greatest ballads ever. And I'm now beginning to question myself. <laughs> have I lost the ability to judge? Because this is, this is okay at best. It just meanders, uh, soppily, goes nowhere prehistorically simple backbeat i don't know what i'm missing um but I, I think it's really flat so this is a song where he does drop it an octave yeah but you're right it is quite flat yeah i, I, don't, I don't mind it i don't mind it yeah, it's more restrained 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah. What you said. I don't, I don't <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a big single for them. It, 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 I mean, what that means nothing. I just thought I'd try that in there. Uh, it's a big single for them in the same way that virtually every single released by every rock band at this time in this period was about a big ballad. This is Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It's it's all of that shit that rose to the, you know, the curdled at the top of the cream um, in commercial terms for heavy metal bands during the sort of late 80s and early 90s. I mean, the only the only thing that I kind of think grunge did a favour is it, it, it strangled this stuff at birth. You're such an old cynic. Every, every, um, Every album should have a cheesy, corny ballad, shouldn't it? Done well, yes. Yeah, yeah this isn't done well. It just isn't. Yeah, Wanted Dead or Alive is a corny, cheesy ballad. But Silent, one. Silent Night. Silent Night is scoring better than this. <laughs> the Crimson Idol closes out with The Great Misconceptions of Me, another epic. Um, goes into a really good riff. It's a good track, but... There's a point, again, there's a point about halfway through. I'm just, how many more theatrical drum rolls do I need? How many more pauses into that same riff? So as a standalone piece of work, if they shortened it, this would be very decent. But at the end of an album, which runs for the best part of an hour, I just feel a little bit anaesthetised by now, just a yeah. little bit in pain. I think you've just summed it up. There are some tracks or some albums where you hear a track and you go, give me that 10 times and I'll be really mm. happy. Blackie gives you the track 10 times but yeah. you feel sick on it it's like it's like you know when my dad told me in an effort to give me make me give up smoking when i was a teenager he made me smoke a packet of 20 cigarettes one after the other <laughs> the first five or six i was thinking this is great my dad's making me smoke by the second by the 18th i was throwing up yeah and i feel the same way about this album it's like smoking a pack of 20 cigarettes yeah. one after the other the only problem is, of course, that you kept on smoking. Yeah, but but then I go back and I'll listen to more Wasp because yeah. I love Wasp. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he certainly attempted the big finish, hasn't he, on this? He, he really does try and give it everything, you know, emotion and anger and despair. It kind of tells the whole story of the album again in one song, I felt. That's right. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I don't, I, I, this is where the Andram came in. I felt this was a little bit too deliberately OTT. So, yeah. I think it's unsurprising, given everything he put into this. He he really, really tried for the big finish, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, that's and, you know, do you know what? A little bit of credit to him. He he ties it all back in with kind of musical motifs from all of the songs. There's a bit of every song in this. And that's quite clever. It's quite clever. As a song, it's all right. But it's quite a clever concept. I think it's a bit better than all right. But as I say... On its own, I'm sure I could listen to it, you know, a few times. Highs and lows on that mixed bag, that cornucopia of um, of blacky pleasure. What do you reckon, boys? The low is hold on to my heart. The high is arena of pleasure. Yeah, a couple of lows. I'm the one. Well, no, I'll no, go with I'm the one for my low. And yeah, arena of pleasure for me as well is, is the high. Yeah, clean sweep there. And I'm with Mark, actually. Hold on to my heart. Is pretty awful. 
So there you go. That's uh, that's those three albums done. Uh, Saxon's Denim and Leather, Theo's The Last in Line, Wasps, The Crimson Idol. We shall now score these. Then we shall work out the averages and pop them into the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initialising rating process. So how did our three albums set for us as our homework by Doro do on this episode number 48? Well, I went first with Saxon's Denim and Leather. And scores were as follows. Steve gave it a 7.72. Mark, the highest with an 8.29. I gave it a 7.94. And that gave Denim and Leather an overall Good score, I reckon, of 7.985. Mark, how did Dio do? Uh, pretty well, actually. Um, Steve gave it um, 7.8. I gave it an 8.1. You, Richie, gave it a 7.55 to give it an overall average score of 7.81481. Steve, the Crimson Idol. Uh, yeah, this went pretty much to type. I gave it 7.35, you gave it 7.42, but then we're Wasp fans. Richard gave it 6.8 for a total score of 7.19. So if I'm honest, it's probably better than I thought it would do. Um, So yeah, it's it's not a bad score at all. So I suggest we pop over to the Hall of Fame and see where these three albums um, now lie. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So the doors are open in the Hall of Fame. It has 144 albums in it thus far. Three more went in in this episode. The lowest of the three, unsurprisingly, is The Crimson Idol by Wasp, uh, with a score of 7.19, which is, it's not even made the top 100. In fact, the only positive you can say about it is it's fared marginally better than the only other Wasp album we've done so far, which is Inside the Electric Circus, which isn't great, because that's down at 100 and. 24. So anyway, enough of the chaff. Let's talk about the wheat. And yeah, uh, good. Dio is the last in line is at 38. Saxon's Denim and Leather is at 25. 7.81 and 7.98 respectively. And I think, I, I tell you what, as we started this, I didn't think they'd get any higher than that, boys. Did you? No. In fact, they're higher than I thought they might end up, actually. Mm. Denim and Leather. And the last in line, actually, given the way we all spoke about it, I expect it to be slightly higher than that, though not as high as Saxon have ended up. So, yeah, I mean, pretty much where where they probably deserve to be. But then that's kind of the point of the process, isn't it? Holy Diver is uh, down at number 94. So uh, last in line did significantly better. Uh, amongst the three of us, I'm surprised though personally because you know I, I like Holy Diver. I'm surprised to see it that far in front of it. Denim another. Well, it's you know it's up there. Crumbs. Look at it. It's um, it's up with you know Holy Fire and Fire of Unknown Origin. Uh, so it's done. It's done very well for itself. Yeah, it's interesting that there's only half a mark. Interestingly, between the two Dio albums, but of course that streets apart when you've got so many albums in between, such as the uh, such as the minutiae between um, between these albums. The scoring is that marginal, that fractional. But that's that's the way we do it. And as Richard said at the top of the show, we're homing in on 150, and we will keep going until uh, until we take our last breaths. I guess because we love doing this, and we hope you enjoy doing it as well enjoy listening to it so there you go that was episode 48 um and the choices of doro pesh three albums picked for us by the metal queen herself 
and proof that her taste in rock is as good as her singing voice. Check out our interview with, with Doro. I know I'm a complete fanboy, <laughs> um, but she was fabulous fun, um, good company. And she had a font of good stories. For example, did you know what happened to Lemmy's Ashes? Well, there you go. Tune in. Tune in. I mean, it's all there. It's all there. There's loads of great stuff. She was, she's, she was a super company. Um, and gave us three really fascinating albums to listen to as well. We've reviewed them. We've enjoyed every second. Next time, we'll have three albums to review. They'll be chosen by us, of course, um, next time. But we're looking forward to that. Uh, we'd love to have the pleasure of your company. And until then, all the best. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.